So the portion of what we've done so far is kind of wrapped up in one sense of trying to give a general process for approaching all of Scripture. And so what we're going to talk about today with the stories or narratives, um, this still applies. All that we've had before still applies, but there's probably, I would say, some extra steps or just some helpful tools to put in your tool belt to try to deal with stories which by their nature are implicit in the way they're trying to communicate something. Um, and so it becomes a little easier to get off the tracks because it's not explicitly telling you this is what it's trying to communicate. You have to ask, what truth is this story communicating? What principle? What am I learning about God? What am I learning about man? And so there's a little bit, um, it's easier to get off the tracks. But this still all goes back to this issue, which is the conviction that an author wrote to a particular audience for a reason with a specific purpose. And you still have to do all that work, and you have to understand what Joshua is about, the central theme of Joshua, you have to have that in your mind before you start really getting into what are the specific stories or narratives communicating. All right. Let me get to... Okay. So early on, we talked a little bit about the term genre. So genre being um, the, the style. So we talk music, country western, uh, rap, hip-hop, classical music, jazz music. It's that same idea in literature. There's different styles or different genres. Uh, the four main one in scripture we're going to cover kind of briefly. We're going to cover four errors briefly when we specifically narrow into the narrative genre or the storytelling genre. And then we're going to start in and we're going to look at two, I think that's how far we'll get this morning, um, characteristics that will help us identify what is going on and, and how to interpret the, the narratives and the stories of the Bible. Uh, the reason for this, the importance of this, is I would say most of the errors in Bible interpretation come from the stories of the Bible. Um, if you have a crazy story about someone preaching a text and they just all of a sudden just went into like crazy land, it's probably they chose a text with some story. Um, when I think about some of the most off-the-rail sermons I've heard, they typically are Old Testament stories, and they're typically uh, coming out of um, sometimes even well-known stories where they figured out some spiritual key, and it's nowhere near what the text ever originally meant. And so keeping that in light of it is, is really important, the, the central theme, and that there's a conviction still he's using this story out of all the stories he could use for a specific reason and a specific purpose. Uh, before we jump into narrative, though, just looking at, broadly speaking, we're not going to dive too far into this, um, but there is, when you think of these big genres throughout Scripture, uh, the first one we're going to talk about is poetry, just briefly, in that this is communicating through figurative language and emotional language. So when I talk about using a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, one reason that's a nice term is because the grammatical portion deals with these genres. That I'm not saying it's a quote-unquote wooden literalism. And so um, I'm fine if you say, should we have a literal interpretation? Sure, yes. Grammatical historical is a little bit nicer because it gives a little bit more of a nuanced view to say, well, a literal in the way that the grammar says. So we understand that sometimes using poetry, where it communicates through figurative and emotional language, that it's going to use metaphors, uh, that are as illustrative picture language, something is like this, and um, we're, we understand that it's, it's even thinking of the hand of God, for example, 
Um, we understand that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a literal hand, but it's going to talk about that in that way, the way God controls things, his, his, his hand, although we understand he doesn't have a hand. Um, one place you probably know well, just to give a couple of illustrations, Psalm chapter 1, talking in verse 3 here, that he will be, that is the, the righteous person that's meditating on God's law day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. And so this is poetic. It's meant to give very vivid, emotional language, and maybe even more so for an original on an audience, because although you might have an idea of a tree, uh, you might have an idea of a stream of water, go to a culture that's primarily agriculture that doesn't drive 80 miles down an interstate but walks everywhere. Um, and they would have very vivid language of like, oh, I know what it's like. I know how refreshing. I know how um, this looks to have a tree that's firmly planted next to water that's been able to establish its roots deep and strong as opposed to a tree that's far from a water source that's weak and breaking off and all those things. Um, but just to say it's a healthy one that yields its fruit, its leaf does not wither, they, they know what that kind of tree looks like, and he's saying that is like the person who is committed to meditating on God's law day in and day night, the righteous one. The contrast is also poetic, which is the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff with which the wind drives away. Um, again, in a farming community, you kind of get the idea of chaff blowing in your eyes. We have 30-mile-an-hour winds today. Um, whether it's dust, probably the better analogy for us is dust. Um, but it's just kind of an annoyance and it's an irritant, and that's the wicked. They're just simply there one minute, gone another, blowing in somebody's eyes and driving by. So it's meant to experientially say, hey, you know what a tree is, you know what chaff is, you've been out in the cornfields and having the dust in your eyes, that's like the life of the wicked. It's just there and it's gone and it's meaningless, whereas it's not bearing any fruit, creating anything um, rather contrasted to the tree firmly planted. Another one, Ecclesiastes 4.5, the fool folds his hands and embraces and consumes his own flesh. Uh, the way, how could you say this a little more uh, vividly if you translated this? Who consumes their own flesh? Cannibals. So the fool folds his hands in embrace and is a cannibal. Well, are all fools cannibals? No, but it's very poetic and figurative to say they're self-destructive. The fool is a very self-destructive person who does things that by their actions actually leads to their own death. Even though they think they're bringing life and joy and pleasure, they're consuming their own flesh. They're cannibals. And that's meant to help kind of help uh, not only a wise person see that, but also hopefully call out a fool and to say, hey, reconsider your ways. Um, poetic form, you could feel the point and understand what it means. Prophecy number two, uh, we understand this one a little bit hopefully better because we've been in Revelation. But looking at the whole of Scripture, a lot of Scripture is straightforward. Even a lot of prophecy is straightforward. So here's an example of that where in Genesis 49 verse 10, that the scepter, which is the idea of ruling, shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, Judah's not the oldest son, so that's part of this whole story. Um, the, and so, but it's going to be through him that the ruling happens in the tribes of Israel. And until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So when later on it's picked up, that 
the Messiah, that David comes from the tribe of Judah, that the Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah, this understanding this, it's like that's where it was always going to come from, from which of the 12 sons is going to come from Judah because that's the ruling clan, as it were. Um, that's very straightforward. That's not difficult. Other times, in some pies, there's some debate over this terminology, but I'll use it because it's probably the most common in this literature genre discussion. But this idea that sometimes it's apocalyptical, being a style that describes settings, characters, events in a way that differs from ordinary reality. And I might add to that that also very times it's fairly obvious. Um, I think that's been true in Revelation as I've studied. When you get to very um, kind of, in this case you've used this terminology, apocalyptic ways of describing events, it's pretty clear there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. And other times you can see a very clear one-to-one, -one, and I don't think it's as hard to differentiate in Revelation as, as some uh, commentaries seem to make it. But one example which we just walked through Sunday morning not too long ago uh, in Revelation chapter 9, talking about, and there's a whole question there about is this a demonic army and all the things. I think it is a demonic army, so I think yeah. this is demons. But that the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like faces of men. They had hair like hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle, and they have tails like scorpions and stings, but in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. I submit to you that is not straightforward. And I don't think I mentioned it. Someone came up to me afterwards and told me, it's like, I'm sure that's tanks. Because um, there's some definitely some stuff written about that. The, how would he, John, if he saw tanks and Apache helicopters, he would have thought, oh, that's like, uh, well, you know, what's the, the blade and I go, I don't necessarily think that's the point. I think John is simply using this type of language to say the, this is a very horrendous, horrible thing. And in using all these as pictures and metaphors of what this looks like, um, we don't really have a good idea other than it's demonic and that it's, it's going to be something that is horrible and terrible and something that really you could say scary, right? Verse 10, they have tails like scorpions and stings in their tails. Um, it's the power to hurt men for five months. Maybe locusts, because the span of locusts tend to be five months. That could be a correspondence there, having just taught through this. Uh, questions on that, though, with just poetry. Well, let's do one more real quick. Poetry, prophecy, epistles, because then we'll get into ours. Uh, epistles is the most straightforward one. Uh, writing is communicated very explicitly. Paul tells exactly what he means. Um, if he does use a uh, metaphor, he's pretty clear with it. For example, Colossians 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ, you the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, being built up in him, having been established in your faith, just as you instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. Straightforward. You received Christ as Lord, walk, or in that case, that actually is a metaphor, live in him in this way. The same way that you were built up, keep living in that same way. So questions on the first three before we spend the rest of our time on number four. Just good to be aware and good to have a grasp for what are you reading. And sometimes if it gets confusing or if it is something they go, I don't know what in the world it's saying. It seems crazy. It can be helpful to maybe back up and go, is it one of these three things? Poetic, prophecy. Um, one of the things that makes Revelation an interesting book is that it is a prophetic book because it's saying it's a prophecy. But it's also written, at least those first three chapters, in a very uh, epistolary 
way because it's written to the seven churches. So it makes Revelation unique. So one of the biggest things I hear from people regarding stuff like theistic evolution and stuff like that is that Genesis 1 through 3 is poetry. Is that, is that true? Because I, I always, I think it's more narrative, I would say, but right. historical. But how do you respond to that when they say it's written more poetic, it's written in a more poetic style, or you know, right. know Hebrew better than I do? Right. So, um, the short answer is, without diving too deep into it, it, it is doing that issue, though, and, and it is to say that's an important issue. Um, I don't know if, if you gave ground to say there's, there's a way in which it is figurative language. I don't even think, though, that necessarily leads you to, well, this is communicating theistic evolution. Like, that's a really big jump from a modern view of evolution to it being taught even in a figurative way in Genesis like 1 and 2. But that said, the question of whether it's poetry or whether it's narrative is, is an important question. Um, particularly in the Hebrew, what I've always understood, and I am, you know, I do have five semesters of Hebrew, but um, I'm no expert in that sense. But, I, but I, the way I understand it is um, the way there's an attachment with the wow consecutive, which is a way um, Hebrew adds something to communicate narrative um, that's pretty consistently, and I have translated Genesis 1 and 2, the while consecutive is used consistently um, to indicate this is narrative. This is telling a story. Now, that said, I don't think you have to be totally shocked or blown off your feet when you understand it's communicating a theological truth. So sometimes people also get knocked back on that a little bit. In other words, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are trying to drive at a central theme of Genesis that isn't primarily focused on the inner workings and engineering of creation. So that's not to say you can't learn things from it. Um, and um, I just think, yes, that you look back. And also, people ask the same question about chapter 1 and chapter 2. Why is it repeated? Well, that's also a very stylistic tool that can be used in narrative to look at the same event from two different perspectives. So it does come up, and it is important. But that's my understanding is looking at it. That I, I'm very convinced it's narrative. So, and yes, you have all kinds of problems. If it's not, is Genesis 4 narrative? Is Genesis 5 narrative? Is Genesis 6 narrative? Just You go right down the list. When does it start becoming? Is Abraham real? So. And it would be a very, I would say, not possible to make any distinction. In other words, it's not poetic in that way. Does it use language? Um, again, like that's epistles. Paul will use, just like we all use, um, metaphors and things. But that's definitely not saying it's the genre of poetry. So. Yeah, probably. Um, Within that, I mean, like I said, we, we, you can also dig, dig a little deeper with historical being a type of narrative. But, but yeah, wisdom letters would probably fall under poetry. Some people do. And again, it just depends on how far you want to look at it. But yeah. Right. No, for sure. Yeah, well, and that, yeah. When you look throughout Scripture, multiple, including Jesus, take them as historical figures, which is another 
thing. So, all right, anything else? All right, fourth, uh, narrative. All right, this is where we're going to spend our time looking at narrative, looking at four things to avoid, and then starting in on some helpful ways to look at it. Uh, narrative simply communicates its message by using people and circumstances to make the point. So the big issue here is that it communicates in general. I'll leave that up actually real quick if you guys want to write that down. Uh, it communicates in general implicitly. It doesn't always tell you what the purpose of his adding that story is, which is why you have to do work, which is also why you can make a lot of mistakes because you're asking the question out of all the stories, why did he use these stories? If you remember way back when in this class we talked about some of the historical accounts of First and Second Samuel and Chronicles and Kings and um, that they took certain stories from the kings and they said the rest are back at the presidential library. It's this idea of finding out what, or I guess you know what stories they use, but answering the question why they used that specific story when they could use other stories. Same thing when it comes to the Gospels. It's pretty clear. You look at John, Jesus, they, there's a lot written, um, but he wrote these things with a very specific purpose in the Gospel of John so that you might believe. But it communicates things implicitly, and then probably the most important, I would say, principle or understanding is that last bit with prescription versus description. It's just recognizing that as you study scripture, there are some things that are very clearly prescribed. Thus says the Lord, do this. Um, even that in the Old Testament, you got to be a little bit careful because is it prescribing it to Israel or is it prescribing it to the church? And I see a distinction. And then um, a lot of places in the New Testament, a great example is the book of Acts. Um, but the Old Testament is full of describing these things where you got to be really careful that you're not taking one-to-one when it comes to the interpretation of narrative and understanding that so that um, you can find, well, but basically if you, if, you, if you misunderstand this, you can make scripture mean whatever you, you want it to mean. If you want to justify a sin, um, you can go find a person like David and go, well, David did it. It's like, well, that's not the point. David couldn't be an elder at Providence Bible Church. So that's not the point, which is interesting to think about as far as the difference between Israel and the church, by the way, because you get to elder qualifications and King David, a man out of God's own heart, doesn't meet them. Also, one of those distinctions between, I'd say, the, new, uh, the Israel and, and the church. All right, so the author is using uh, the stories to lead the reader to a point without directly stating it. And what, uh, what errors do we want to avoid as we're doing that? Uh, the error comes from, I'd say, a mostly, I think, genuine desire, at least when it comes to broad evangelicalism. These tend to be people who want to communicate God's word. They, they want to make it, quote-unquote, relevant to the modern-day audience. Um, but that can be really, really dangerous. And this goes back to, are we after the authorial intent of the text, or are we after making relevant today? Hopefully what we've seen so far in this class is that you can move step by step as you spend time in observation, the author, what it says to what it means to what's the implication for today. And you do get to a relevance for today, but this is where, just like in other places, they're skipping over to the last step of application too quickly. And narrative is one of those places where it gets really easy and without some rails of Thus says the Lord, um, textually, uh, people tend to 
get in trouble. I would say this too on that note. One of the issues with this, you say, why is that so bad? Because what's going to happen in a lot of these stories or when people teach this way is that they're potentially going to say teach a 45-minute message and nothing heretical or wrong is going to be said. And I would say, well, the flip side is also true, which is, but they also didn't preach what the word said. They also didn't say what God said. So that's the problem with it. Even if they don't necessarily, like say this error of interpretation doesn't lead them to an error theologically or an error where, say, they're encouraging people to sin, something of that nature, this problem is still remains that you're not equipping the church, you're not preaching the word. Um, and so it's, it's just as dangerous in the end, especially because it's going to lead to a very weak, weak church. So the first error uh, we want to look at avoiding is this whole idea of allegorizing the text. Allegorizing. An allegory is simply a story in which people, things, and happenings have another meaning as if the story were a fable or a parable. It's this idea of a hidden or deeper meaning. And so you read a story on the surface and you go, well, I can't take it for what it is and I'm looking for a deeper spiritual meaning. Specifically, um, if you haven't done a lot of work on the observation side of interpretation, or on the observation side and then interpretation. The other thing that allegory does is it helps you get to when you're teaching, um, and this is a bad thing, don't do this, but it can help you get to a concept or idea that is more preachy, that, that, to the point we were earlier, that, that's more relevant because your story's boring. And you have to do the work to go, no, I'm convicted, the Bible's not boring. The Bible is relevant, and all I have to do is find out why it's relevant in this text and communicated to God's people, and they're going to be ministered to, encouraged, and it's, it's not going to be a boring story. Uh, it disregards the historical nature of the narrative, attempting to make details of the text apply to a modern-day audience. Uh, one I just heard uh, from another preacher, of, of not, not him, but somebody that he had known, um, who was preparing a message in Joshua, where they noticed that Joshua, throughout the book of Joshua, conquers the valleys first and then the mountaintops and then the valleys and then the mountaintops. And then, you know, he said, what I figured out was that the valleys represent, represent like the, the lows of our life, you know, the mountains represent the highs of our life. And then he developed and worked a whole sermon out to where you need to go after the valleys first and then the mountaintops and then live your life on the mountaintops for Jesus. Uh, and you go, okay, how do you get there? Well, you get there because you completely kind of ejected from the text meaning anything. You, you, there's no conviction that God actually has something to say very specifically. And you went and jumped from, oh, if you've been to Israel, there's a lot of valleys and a lot of hills. And they conquered valleys and they conquered mountains. Um, and so just an example of, okay, this has nothing to do and nothing in the text connects this to from physical valleys, physical mountains, to spiritual valleys or spiritual mountaintops. Um, another one, uh, John chapter 2, um, think of water to wine. I might actually, if you guys think of one, maybe you guys can think of one from, from your experience. Uh, but John chapter 2, water to wine, uh, this idea that in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, of course, we already know the Gospel of John has a very specific purpose, um, that you might understand these things, that you might believe, which becomes very important that he establishes that Jesus is the Son of God, and that you believe that. 
So you look at Jesus turning water into wine, and you go, okay, well, this definitely has a part to play because there's uh, a number of miracles at the very beginning of his ministry in John and the way he lays them out. But if you were to allegorize it, you'd say something of this nature, and this is something I have heard before, um, is, is the water to wine. Because you remember the water, what's miraculous is, not only does he turn water into wine, he turns it into the best wine, and like they pour it, and it doesn't run out. And so um, I've heard that text taught in a way in which the connection is to the resources that you have in your life. And when you want out of resources, Jesus will give you and refill those resources, right? He'll take what you have that isn't good. He'll make it better. In fact, he'll make it the best because he made it the best wine. And he'll um, make it about your supplying your resources in every way. Even as you run dry, he'll resupply it. And in that way, the story makes uh, an allegory about your life and your resources. One consistent theme throughout all these errors is it becomes very self-centered um, about me. And again, because it disregards the historical nature, you're missing the point of how this demonstrates Jesus is the Son of God. So you're missing a very, very important point by making that connection. Uh, if you want to turn, you can turn there, Matthew 13. Just do one more. I've seen this happen multiple times as well. So, I said a narrative. This is in the Gospels when uh, particularly parables can be a challenge. Um, I take parables as communicating a single point as well, which um, parables kind of have their own thing going on, Um, especially in their hidden nature. Some people look at that as it's a good thing. And um, there's actually a whole movement, and it's been there for a long time, in preaching where we should model Jesus taught in parables, so I should teach in stories. But then the catch, of course, is if you read the Gospels well and you go, oh, the reason Jesus told stories was so that no one knew what he was talking about. So it's like, I don't know if that's exactly what we want to do Sunday morning. Um, It served very much Jesus' purposes, um, but it it falls a little bit flat. But you come to Matthew 13, um, this parable, like verse 3, spoke many many things to them in parables, saying, behold... The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road. The birds came and ate them up, and others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. When the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns. The thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on good soil and were yielding a crop, some of hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who his ears let him hear. And then he goes on, verse 10, and the disciples came and said, Why do you speak? to them in parables. And he goes on and explains why he speaks to them in parables. Well, I've heard this preached a number of times because someone's not teaching sequentially. That is, they're not going through the book. They're not going through Matthew. They're not going through a chapter and then going to the next chapter um, where someone has not read ahead. And so they they do some of the allegorizing in connecting these things between um, the nature of soils and maybe is is it a believer? Is it an unbeliever? Does it represent the spiritual life? what is going on, and they decide to kind of think about what's going on and what they think this will preach really well. But then, what gets them in trouble is they don't read down to verse 18. In fact, I remember listening to a sermon and getting and thinking, but it tells you exactly what these correspond to. And that oftentimes happens in the, at least the parable side of things. And so you drop down to 18, and then he explains it. Here then, the parable of the sower, anyone hears the word, and explains that the seed is the word, and 
obviously explains what kind of people, i.e. soils, that we are talking about. And so I don't think it's even a very difficult passage because you don't have to do the interpretation of what are the soils because Jesus does it for you if you read far enough. So you've got to do the work. Um, and one of the things algorithm or algorizing um, does is it, I think, makes you lazy because you don't work hard to go find out what it does mean. Because <laughs> it's just easier to go, let's connect this to a general um, story. Probably leading to a related error and maybe even easier than allegorizing because you need a little imagination for allegory. Um, spiritualizing being the second error to avoid is probably a little more natural for most of us. And so defining it simply as a method of interpretation that discards the earthly, physical, historical reality the text speaks about and crosses the gap to a modern audience with a spiritual analogy of that historical reality. Uh, specifically, this is taking the, the whole point of the story and spiritualizing it as opposed to different components of the story, which we'll talk about as another error along the way. I'll leave it up there for a second. Does anyone have any allegorizing stories? Well, some people are copying that down. I didn't even really, I don't have a ton of my notes, honestly, as far as examples, but, you know, David and Goliath's probably the most popular one, or the most common one. Slaying the giants of your life, so pretty. Who doesn't have some David and Goliath series on that, so. No, that's not. But you do got to know what First Samuel, we will talk about what First Samuel's talking about, which will really help you understand, actually, what is going on, and we're not going to talk about David and Goliath, but it, by understanding what's going on in 15 and 16, it'll help you understand 17. We did. We talked a little bit about Genesis 1. And we're not getting too far into like church history, but there, if you talk about origin and you talk about the... Um, different views that kind of came in early church history. There's definitely a contingent from origin on that tended to not disregard the literal sense completely, but there'd be, there's the literal sense and there's a spiritual sense. And so the deeper hidden meaning became kind of um, at least propagated throughout the church. All right. Um, so it uses the whole point of the story uh, to make a, a, a point. So it might tell the story in a way and then connect it to some spiritualizing of that story that, again, the text is not making. So there's, there's, if, if the text is using it as an illustration to make a spiritual point, that's a whole different animal. This would be saying, no, that's, you're, you're actually taking which, a story which does have meaning, you're hijacking it and making it into something that is, has a different spiritual meaning that is not in the text. Um, probably one of the another one that would be there would be uh, Jesus and the Galilee calming the storm, and then it becomes simply a story of Jesus calming the storms of your life. And so we've taken an act which Jesus did, which was take a boat out, get in a storm, everyone's going to die, and he calms it. But you go, this is a big jump to oh, immediately to me, and it's about 
my storms in my life. And you go, well, there's no correlation in this text there. This is talking about people's storms in their life. So you just go back to say, no, but there's, and that what's, again, what's really bad about that isn't so much that we don't have trials, tribulations, suffering, but I'd say there's other passages that are better that do teach on that issue. But then secondarily, there is something going on if we were to go to, um, I think it's, I think of Mark 4, I think. Um, if we were to go to Mark 4 and look at that, it's like, oh, you're missing the main point of Mark 4 when you spiritualize it. And now you've made a point that isn't inspired by the Holy Spirit necessary for the uh, building up of the church. And so it becomes a big, big issue. And every one of these ends up being more self-focused than we're not asking the right questions. We're just simply jumping to how can I help this today uh, in my life versus what does this mean? What does God want to teach me? What does the text say? Uh, question on the first two, allegorizing, spiritualizing. Don't do it. <laughs> now, like I said, I want to cover more uh, next week on narrative. So, but I think in two weeks, like, we'll end this whole class with a discussion of typology. Because if you haven't had this thought yet, the questions come, you know, what about Sarah and Hagar and Paul's use in Galatians? Is that an allegory? What about spiritualizing? And without going too deep, I just would say currently, um, when the text does it explicitly, that's something different than taking something that's not in the text. So, but we, we'll talk about that in typology a little bit. Uh, thirdly, another error is moralizing. Moralizing, taking a single point of the story uh, and creating an Practical example to follow in isolation from the text. So, in contrast, the broadly spiritualizing, another uh, danger is that you take one component of the story and you go, this is a great example, um, and say this is something that happened, or um, we'll combine this with the next one, imitating Bible characters, um, and you isolate it from the text, and it simply becomes a story about how to be like that person or an example to follow versus God is actually... The main character uh, shouldn't be a surprise to us, not us. Um, and so in moralizing, we make ourselves the central character. Genesis 39 is a good example. Joseph and Potiphar's wife, it simply becomes a story about, um, well, Joseph's whole life really ends up becoming a story of examples of what we can point to as principles. Uh, Joseph's family blatantly sins against one another, and you could preach sermons on, look, this is what happens in families and dysfunctions, and don't lie, and don't cheat, and don't you know, take your brother and throw him into a pit to die, um, which would all be good practical examples, but there's, that's not what the main point of the text is, is teaching. Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. That's a good example of fleeing from sexual morality, but that's not even the major point that's being communicated in that text over Joseph's life. Um, maybe you could teach it in a way that, look at Joseph, he was consistently loving the Lord, um, serving honestly, was a man of integrity, and so he ended up being the second command in all of Egypt. And if you're honest and hardworking, you'll get the promotion and move in the ranks, which you're going, you might be disappointed when that doesn't happen, because that's not a promise from God. That's not what we're, the main thing we're supposed to learn. Now, you could look at Proverbs, you could look at integrity, you could look at honesty, and all those things are are good things, but they may or may not help you uh, climb the corporate ladder. So, 
Oh, another one, just think of Joseph's story, the uh, forgiveness of his brothers, right? But again, that's, that's good. You can learn something from that, but don't pull it out separate from what's going on as a whole and what God is really doing. And in Joseph's story, just to talk about that one for a moment, there's a bigger story, not only that what the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good, which is very comforting, I think, to all of us, but there's something even bigger going on that, oh, he put Joseph exactly where Joseph needed to be to save Israel from being, literally, God not being faithful to his promise to bless them because they were able to go and survive the famine by being in Egypt during that time. So there's just a bigger point happening. So danger of moralizing. And then just like that, um, anytime with Bible characters, it can be a danger to imitate, be like this, be like that. Uh, the danger with that is if you say, be like Moses, you're going to have to say, which Moses? Moses, uh, the liar, you know, um, or, you know, just different characters where obviously they all have their, their flaws. Particularly when you get to Judges, if you were to preach a sermon series on different characters in the Judges, one of the points of the book of Judges is how it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so somehow you end up teaching these stories. I remember... And I, to this day, still have a very positive view of Gideon. But I remember teaching through, oh, Judges, maybe now 10 years ago. And Gideon's an awful character. But I always thought of him as such a great guy. And, like, you know, he's the one. He took the, the ragged, like, 300 men and won the battle for the Lord, which that is a good thing. He's just human. But also, like, what he does after that point um, by setting him, trying to almost set himself up as, like, a king and to set up a dynasty, you go, oh, wow, actually... Uh, Gideon is not the hero of the story. There's really no heroes in the book of Judges is what it ends up being. So everything comes back to the idea of prescription versus description. Um, Yes, you can learn some things principally from the characters, but don't detach any of that and build and say, this is what the text is saying. Um, Let those speak for themselves. Um, When it is an example to follow, let it be an example, but don't get lost in what it's not saying. All right, we'll see how far we get here on this. So we're going to look at just two of these, characteristics of narrative. So these are things to be looking for. These are things that every storyteller, every TV show, every movie, this is just built into the way God made humanity, the way we communicate, is going to use at some level. They're going to characterize, describe the person in a way. They're going to put details in that they want you so that they have a visual of that person to think a certain way about them. Um, to communicate something. So this can happen in different ways. And all I really want to say is this, which is that when you see it, when someone is characterized, um, is that the presentation of the character through the right description of his appearance, social status, overt actions, direct speech, thoughts, and description comments, that when that happens, you need to pay attention. That's all I'm really saying at this point. And you'll see kind of, I think, where it, it helps and it matters. And it'll point you back to what the text is trying to communicate. So every time there is a description of a character, just make sure you make note, you ask why, and you go track down and try to ask the question, what is the author telling me? For example, Mark chapter 1, verse 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locusts and wild honey. You read Mark chapter 1, and this seems, I mean, Mark just, first of all, is an interesting gospel in of itself, the way it starts, because it doesn't start like anything close to Matthew or 
I mean, John is his own unique animal. Luke's different. Um, but why is this here? And then why, when he describes John the Baptist, does he give this description? Now, you could say, well, that's because it's true, which is, yeah, every time it characterizes a person, it's not lying. It's true of him. But you need to go, this should trigger something in you to go, why is this? Have I heard this description before? And we're not going to trace it down, but you'd go, do we know anybody in the Bible who ran around in camel's hair, wore a leather belt, and ate locusts and honey? And the answer is yes. And the answer is yes. And you're going to go, oh, this sounds like Elijah. And then if you're familiar with the end of Malachi, and you go, oh, before the Messiah, Elijah is supposed to come. So this becomes very important. Um, I think particularly in Mark as well, you're going to see that his um, emphasis on authority that John is an authoritative character. I think that plays a role into why he communicates. How do you know he's authoritative? Well, he's dressed like this, which, of course, to us would go, how does this attire, outfit, communicate authority? Well, it's a prophet. That's what, it's what a prophet looks like. All right. Um, another really good example, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Um, if you want to go there somewhat or hang around there, we'll go with a couple of these briefly. It's a good example of when, I've said this I think a few times already, but I miss old Bibles at times. It's like, oh, I used to have a lot of notes in them from my, when I taught through 1 Samuel. Um, but in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when you're first introduced to Saul, you learn something about Saul. Now, we're just jumping in here at this point. Um, what he's actually doing at this point as well is also interesting. He's actually hiding in the baggage, um, which is to say he's scared. And it's not so much his character that stands out. It is this feature that stands out. Um, and Samuel says to all the people, verse 24, Do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people, which is what they want. They want someone like a king like all the other nations, right? They had judges. Samuel's a judge. They don't want Samuel anymore. They want a king like all the other nations. He's like, fine. Look, Yahweh has chosen this guy who's hiding behind the baggage. They drag him out. There's no one like him among all the people. And so all the people said, long live the king. And the description is verse 23 at the top there that they ran, took him from there. He stood among the people and he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. If you really think about that, you go, that's weird. Why is that an important description? Um, A, it's true. Is it because all presidents have to be at least six foot three? No. Is it taller people are more commanding and more godly? No. Not necessarily. They might be. I don't know. But why his height being the one thing that stands out? Um, why not his hair? We don't know his hair color. We don't know his eye color. Any of those things. We don't even know what he's wearing. We just know when everyone saw him, they said, that's a king. He looks the part. He's head above everyone else. And so this would just be a case where I'd say that's a characterization. Go track it down. Ask questions of the text to go, why in the world would he make this characterization of Saul? Well, one of the things that's going to be played off throughout all of 1 Samuel is going to be the comparison contrast of two characters being, and 1 Samuel are one book originally. So through both 1st and 2nd Samuel, this characterization of who is Saul, who is David. Now, is David short? Is David ugly? Not necessarily. 
In fact, eventually, you know, so you say David's handsome. So the issue isn't like, oh, man, good-looking people, they're, they, they should definitely avoid leadership at all costs. That's not going to be the point. But you start to see this contrast made um, as you see throughout there. They're looking for, we want someone who looks like all the other people. So you could say they're looking at outward appearances. And then if you flip over to 16, and there actually is a lot more to this, a lot more to even Saul's shortcomings, Saul's sins. Why does Saul, in, you know, Samuel's accusation of Saul, um, do you think the Lord would rather have sacrifices than obedience? The answer is no, he'd rather have obedience. He's not looking for outward appearances, and that's the big point of all the brothers here that walk down the line of David's brothers. Again, it's not that David's short. It's not that David's ugly. It's meant to say there's something that the nation of Israel, that they're doing wrong. They did wrong with Saul, which is they judged someone based on the outside. Um, and then let's say 16 verse 5. And he said, in peace, he's come. I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Set yourself apart as holy and come with me to the sacrifice. He also set apart Jesse's sons as holy, invited them to the sacrifice. And that happened. When they entered, he took... Eliab and thought, surely the anointed of Yahweh is before him. So even Samuel, the prophet slash judge, is going, look at this guy. This is the guy. This has got to be the guy the Lord wants. Because whatever appearance about him, he said, surely the Lord's going to pick this guy. But Yahweh says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his height of his stature, which goes ding, 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 because I have rejected him. For God sees not a man what a man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. And so they're actually, if you go back to 1 Samuel 10, what seems a little bit out of place is a major theological point throughout the book of 1 and 2 Samuel that we look and are in danger of looking at people on the outward and don't think that God looks at people the same way. Do people still today look at outward appearances? Yes. The point is, don't be fooled into thinking God does. God looks at the heart. That's why he picks David. Now, there's all kinds of other interesting dilemmas that flow out of, well, how can a man after God's own heart do what David does? So, But we'll leave that for that. Uh, next week, we're going to look at plot, and then we'll see how far we get. Uh, we'll hopefully get the other four in next week. It's just it's getting late on us right now. Um, because plot will be this issue of following along uh, a plot line Every, every story has to have some kind of plot. That's just the nature of it. Um, David and Saul is a plot line in First and Second Samuel. Um, you think, even if you say the plot of the story is to have no plot. Does anyone know a TV show that had a plot about nothing? It's kind of a joke, right? It's, it's, it has no plot. Actually, the fact that it has no plot is the plot, right? Every story has a plot. So look at that next week. Um, and... Uh, Go from there. So thanks, guys.